That is a pretty straightforward prayer. But in a way, it has everything in it. Now in this sermon series we are doing this term on the Gospel of Matthew, I'm not going to offer an expository presentation on the Beatitudes which we just heard. Rather, I want to make a simple claim that the Beatitudes are Jesus' declaration to the crowds, that is to us, about who we are, fundamentally. And about the basis for our specifically Christian identity as being just those lives that God has given us, all of us, anybody, as a gift. Christian identity is not about what we do with our lives, despite what we're always told in church. It's not about our character, though of course that's important. It's not about any value added, just the lives themselves. Everything flows from that. You see, Christians are not special people. We're not special human beings. Christians just know what a human being is. And a human being, I want to suggest that Jesus declares to us today, a human being is naked. Naked from God. Now, of course, nakedness can be viewed as a bad thing. Left naked, we say, with sadness about someone reduced to wretchedness or abject failure. The famous Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben has used, more recently, the image of nakedness to describe how modern states strip individuals of their substantive meaning as citizens who have agency and character, consigning us, all of us who live in these sorts of big, huge, modern nation-states, to the realm of what he calls bare life, at the mercy of sovereign states or corporations. Refugees, millions of them now. Insurance claimants, all of us at some point. Prison inmates, hundreds and thousands of them medical clients, gears in an educational or economic system that grants or removes certification and benefits in ways that far outstrip any agency we could have. The naked, as he puts it, either survive or die, but their survival itself has neither dignity nor worth. Now is this right? Is nakedness a reduction to mere survival? Well, maybe. The coats of skin that God weaves and gives Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness as they are driven from the garden is, in fact, a small gesture to aid in escaping that ultimate reduction, isn't it? But, Reduction is just one version of nakedness. There's a deeper sense in which nakedness, in fundamental Christian terms, is not a reduction at all. 
politically or morally. Nakedness is not just what happens to a person when bad things take place, divine judgment or social oppression. Nakedness is simply who we are, isn't it? Indeed, nakedness is in fact deeply revelatory of the mystery of human being in the first place. In the early modern period, there were small Christian sects that appeared in Bohemia and England called Adamites, which practiced joyful nudity in imitation of their and our first ancestors. Well, why not? Nakedness is, after all, a good. It is the glimmering light that marks the miraculous act of, as Paul puts it, the God who brings into existence the things that do not exist. What comes from his hands is nakedness. A few years ago, not long after Annette and I moved to Toronto, my father, who was in his early 80s, he's now 92, had a stroke. He lived at that time down in Washington, D.C., and was still working, believe it or not, full-time as an academic, an internationally respected applied mathematician. My father was a smart man. I immediately drove down, I met my stepmother, and together we went to the hospital. And initially it wasn't going very well. My father's heart had been deeply compromised by the stroke. He couldn't talk, he could barely move about, and I spent the next few days with him there in the hospital room. I watched as the nurses helped him, changed him, got him to the bathroom at times, I hadn't seen my father naked in many years. But now, unlike Noah's sons, it was my duty to see him stripped. And here he was, shriveled, brittle, helpless, the shell of some old insect of one kind or another. This was the man who had conceived me, raised me, protected me gave of himself to me, loved me, and also against whom I had struggled so long in so many ways as sons do with strong fathers. Literally, listless skin and bones. But for all that, also his own self, his, his real self, you could say, was still bound up there, and it was astonishing. At one point, and I will never forget this, the cardiologist came in to explain what had happened to my father and what they were going to do about his heart. My father weakly motioned for a pen and then tremulously wrote something on a napkin. And we couldn't understand what he had put down on this piece of paper. There were some lines and numbers and Greek letters and then the doctor's face brightened up. Oh, yes, he said. Your equation exactly describes what the medicine is going to do. <laughs> My father wanly nodded. 
and tried to smile. But I've never seen a clear conjunction of created mind and spirit along with earthly, fragile, transitory body. Frailty. A conjunction, I believe, that is proclamatory of something marvelously deep and miraculous and true. As Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. And Job in this famous verse then adds with a resounding exclamation of praise a kind of therefore, blessed be the name of the Lord. He ends by saying, praise just in the conjunction of this spirit and frail flesh. See, I think that's the gospel in a certain way. Now, this is a long introduction, I realize, to the Beatitudes of Matthew 5 that we just heard, but it's important because I think we need to resituate the Beatitudes from their common context of interpretation. Over the centuries, the Beatitudes have often been read in one of two ways. First, as a kind of guide to morals. And in this sense, they've been read ascetically. Blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, meaning be humble, learn meekness, fast, be peaceable, repent with tears, suffer for your faith. And if not ascetically, the Beatitudes, especially more recently, have been read politically. Blessed are the poor, for God cares for them especially, and for pacifists, and for the powerless, and for the oppressed, and for the marginalized. Now both these ascetic and political concerns here I don't think are wrong, surely, in a general way. They're very right. But I'm not sure that Jesus is actually standing before the crowds and us and laying out for us a program of life as a set of marching orders. I think Instead, more fundamentally, he's simply declaring a divine reality. It is not the case that human insistence on power or money or prosperity is a vice. Well, it may be that. But more importantly, such insistence is simply untrue. And it is not just the case that such insistences are unjust, though surely they are is that they're unreal. Thus, Jesus' judgment on, if you will, the contradiction of the Beatitudes is not so much condemnation as it is astonished pity. Fool! He says to those who have denied this truth and reality, Fool! Tonight your soul is required of you. you. Remember, he says that in the parable of the rich fool. That is, you've forgotten who you really are. Indeed, the Beatitudes are true simply because this is who the one true human being is. Ecce homo, Pilate says in the Latin translation. Behold the man as he presents Jesus to the crowds, to us. Behold what a human being is. 
The Beatitudes make little sense, I believe, unless we realize that these kinds of teachings are first of all about Jesus as just this man. Writers like Gregory of Nyssa insisted on this as he read the Beatitudes, and I think we should as well. Jesus is the poor one, the one who was rich and became poor for us, not counting divinity as something to be grasped. Jesus is the thirsty one. I thirst, he cries from the cross. Jesus is the meek one upon whom the Lord laid the transgressions of us all, and he did not lift up his voice. Jesus is the peacemaker, who went about preaching peace to those far off and those who are near, who is our peace, breaking down the wall of hostility between us. The Beatitudes, that is, are enacted by Jesus. Hence they are the gospel, his gospel but in this way. And most importantly, Jesus, the man upon whom all human beings gaze, lifted up before the eyes of the world, is thus the man who is stripped bare and hangs naked. The nakedness of Jesus, in fact, is a central claim of the gospel. Now, it's been resisted in many ways over the centuries, but it's been generally asserted from the early church on. Jesus was naked when he died. Obviously, by the time images of the cross and the deposition were being made, artists would depict a cloth hanging over his groin for modesty's sake. But few doubted the assumption that as clothes were bartered at his bloodied feet, he, like all Roman criminals, was left hanging above them, utterly denuded. And only in his death, taken down, was he wrapped up again, like anybody in a hospital bed. Truly, This is the Son of God, the centurion exclaims, looking at Jesus' naked body. Naked he died. And naked he rose, as the disciples discover at his tomb, rifling through the scattered linens left behind. In this way, I think God himself has shown us what is of true value. Our very lives as his gift in just their ungrasped gratuity. Jesus, the naked one from birth to death to his own resurrection. Ecce homo. Jesus, the one who is holy from God, as he says in John 6, He didn't make himself, he was sent. Jesus as holy towards God, who does not latch on to a life that is finally to be commended to the Father. Sent from God, going to God. And thus, we follow such a truth made manifest. We are poor, for we own nothing but what God has given and what God takes. We are meek, For there is no power. There is no power we could ever hold on to. 
much as we might wish to. We make peace, for the insistence on our way is but a passing resistance to a way we cannot own. We weep, for that is just the inevitable recognition of the embeddedness of our powerlessness before God's gift. Blessed are those who are all and only God's, from and to and not their own. Christians, followers of and believers in Jesus, are naked in just this sense, so that we too proclaim, the Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And nakedness in the scriptures is not an ill, you see. Oh, that we could understand this. To be sure, in the garden, upon the opening of eyes that see how good and evil vie with one another, nakedness is fearful. Yes. To embrace the truth of who we are in a world where suddenly we're tempted to see alternatives to the God who has made us. Yes. That is to tremble, to shiver, to run away and hide, lest we be given over to something less, something less good, less sure, less holy than the one who gave us breath. Nakedness as vulnerability is the product of knowing good and evil. But there's no such thing as vulnerability where there is only God in view. Remember that. So Adam and Eve enjoyed their nakedness like the 17th century Adamites, until their God became obscured. They enjoyed, enjoyed purely and solely the fact that God had made them. Nakedness in the sight of God is the pure fulfillment of human life. There is no vulnerability when we stand alone before God alone. And there is no failure either. We need to remember this as well in a world that both threatens us but also leaves us battered in the face of unceasing judgments about our worth. There's no failure in true nakedness before God. Perhaps you saw the recent movie, The Hidden Life, about Franz Jägerstädter, an Austrian farmer executed by the Nazis at the end of World War II because he refused to sign an oath of allegiance to Hitler. Jägerstädter was a Christian, and his story is a true one. At one point, one of his interrogators says to him, why are you bothering to do this, refusing to sign? You'll make no difference to this war. Serving Christ? To what end? 2,000 years of failure, he says as he leans in to Jägerstädter. And from one perspective, you see, yes, of course, a failure. Jesus' life didn't add up to much. A few healings, a few followers. There were many others like him in this regard, by the way. Dead in his early 30s. A failure, like most people. But he was a truly naked man. He was the perfect man. And there is no failure for such a one as this because God has made him. God, the Alpha and the Omega. And yes, God remade him as well 
nakedness being but the mark of that miraculous touch, the conjunction of dust and spirit that is the Lord's own hand at work in its infinite power. That is you and I in our perfection. Though we are not perfect yet, but only following after, as Paul writes, whatever those purported alternatives to God may throw at us under the guise of vulnerability and failure. Franz Jägerstater died a naked man, but not reduced. He was elevated. Nakedness without shame, hence invulnerable, and without failure is intrinsically elevating. Remember that as well. Do you recall Mark 14, 51? Probably not. As Jesus goes to his death, and there followed him a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young man, the young man laid hold on him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them, naked. In a way, whoever he was, some people think it might have been Mark himself. He was the first disciple of a new age. Or in John 21, when the resurrected Jesus encounters Peter by the lake, Peter stands there, naked to the Lord's new gaze. You see, anything good starts with nakedness. For it is God's to clothe us with his own divine nakedness, his own perfection, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians. So blessed are the poor, in spirit and in body. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are the meek, the hungry, the thirsty, the open-handed, the empty-handed, the eager, the expectant, the followers, the one step after another's, the waiting, the just hears, the from God and the to God, the all gift. Blessed is the bare life that neither state nor stroke could ever wipe away. The glorious life. The life that says in naked coming and naked going, blessed be the name of the Lord, who is the all in all. Amen.